0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 244. It's titled, Are You Spending Too Much?, Last week in episode 243, we discussed the FIRE movement, the financial independence retire early movement. We talked about how much you need in order to retire early. You need sufficient that you can earn enough from investing to cover your living expenses and allow the remaining principal balance to grow by the rate of inflation. You can do that if, if Since your net worth is growing by the rate of inflation, that means that your expenses or the amount you can spend over time will grow by the rate of inflation. Of course, there are the potential, as Susie Orman pointed out, of unexpected expenses. And so it's important to have some type of buffer. And there is the impact of a large market loss. Early retirees need the flexibility to be able to reduce their spending if their principal balance drops. But how, how much do you need to spend? How much do you need to be happy? Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, wrote to Lucilius in letter 16, It is clear to you, I'm sure, Lucilius, that no man can live a happy life or even a supportable life without the study of wisdom. You know also that a happy life is reached when our wisdom is brought to completion. But that life is at least endurable even when our wisdom is only begun. Away then with all excuses like, I have not enough. When I have gained the desired amount, then I shall devote myself to philosophy. And yet this idea which you are putting off and placing second to other interests should be secured first of all. Therefore, one should not seek to lay up riches first. One may attain to philosophy, however, even without money for your journey. It is indeed so. After you have come to possess all other things, shall you then wish to possess wisdom also? Is philosophy to be the last requisite of life, a sort of supplement? Nay, your plan should be this be a philosopher now, whether you have anything or not. For if you have anything, How do you know that you have not too much already? But if you have nothing, seek understanding first before anything else. But you say, I shall lack the necessities of life. In the first place, you cannot lack them, because nature demands but little, and the wise man suits his needs to nature. His means of existence are meager and scanty. He will make the best of them, without being anxious or worried about anything more. Than the bare necessities. Should we spend time seeking just money, wealth, so that then once we have enough, we'll be free to pursue other things like wisdom? Or should we seek those other things now, perhaps even as we were? This idea of how much is enough, how much do you need? He says, our means of existence are meager and scanty. Just need the bare necessities, As Baloo told Mowgli in The Jungle Book, the Disney version. Baloo says, It's like this, little britches. All you got to do is, and then Baloo breaks into song, which I will not do. I did that once in one episode many, many years ago. I will not do that again. Baloo sings, Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities. Old Mother Nature's Recipes that Brings the Bare Necessities of Life. What are the bare necessities? One of the best ways to figure out what is necessary is to go backpacking. When you're sitting there with your pack trying to figure out what to take, it's a question of weight. Frederick Groh in his book, Philosophy of Walking, discussed this, and he describes the necessary as whatever is replaceable, indispensable, unsubstitutable, anything whose absence will promptly be rewarded with some blockage, an involuntary halt, physical discomfort. You'll feel bad if you don't have something that you really need when you're out backpacking. And so that's what's necessary. But he points out there's a level below necessary, a primitive layer. He found this out. He was hiking in south-central France at the base of a mountain, had about a six- or seven-mile walk to the summit. He mentioned the weather was calm and the nights were warm. So he hid his backpack in a tree and started up the mountain with nothing on his back and nothing in his pockets. He wrote, two days like that followed without anything. The sensation was one of immense lightness. Relieved of even the necessary, without the very minimum, nothing. So there would be nothing between me and the sky, me and the ground, cool stream water from cupped hands, wild strawberries, the soft ground for a couch. The elemental, he wrote, is the primary, primitive layer, whose consistency can hardly be felt, for it yields itself in pure form, only to one who has, at some time, got rid of the necessary. Assurance comes from knowing you've got the necessary, the wherewithal to cope with bad weather, paths in all directions, absence of water sources, cold nights. You feel you can count on your equipment, your experience, your capacity to anticipate. This is the assurance of the technologized man who can master situations, wildly responsible. To walk without even the necessary is to abandon yourself to the elements. When you do that, nothing counts anymore. Plans, self-assurance, nothing. Nothing but a full and wholesome trust in the world's generosity. Stones, sky, earth, trees all become subsidiary to us, a gift, inexhaustibly supportive. By abandoning ourselves to it, we gain a previous unknown confidence which satisfies the heart because it makes us totally dependent on an other. I've never been there. I mean, to me, elemental is not having your cell phone and being out of coverage. So I've not been there. Be interesting to try at some point. But this primitive layer, that's the elemental. And then on top of that, you have the necessary. Things that if you don't have will cause some blockage, some discomfort. And above that is the useful. Most things that we have are useful. And he describes useful, Grow does. The useful is something that intensifies a power to act, augments, a production of effects or increases a competence. In other words, it's something that saves time. So it, m- it makes us more efficient. Kitchen appliances, a blender is useful. It's not necessary a dishwasher, useful. When the pro and I were at the Mayan village in December attending the, the Mayan wedding ceremonies, as I sat there in this thatched roof wooden hut, I was amazed that it'd been 30 years since I'd been in one of those. It's mostly things that are necessary, not a whole lot that's useful. They cooked over a fire in the corner of, of this hut. They had hammocks to sleep on, some chairs, but not much. Maybe a radio, but it, there just wasn't. It was necessary. Useful are things that make life easier. We have some friends that are coming to stay with us this weekend. They haven't had a kitchen in about 18 months. They've been redoing their house. They've learned to live without a kitchen and they're surviving. A kitchen is not. Necessary a kitchen is useful, and then on top of useful is a layer, the superfluous. He calls it useless. Grow does, but superfluous this is his other word. He used. It's whatever remains subject to the appreciation of others, or to one's own vanity. We have it so others can admire it, or because we admire it. Seneca in letter 4 wrote, it is the superfluous things for which men sweat. The superfluous things that wear our toga's threadbare, that force us to grow old in camp, that dash us upon foreign shores. In other words, things that make us work hard for money are the superfluous things. Continues, that which is enough is ready to our hands. He who has made a fair compact with poverty is rich. We all have superfluous things, things that we buy because we like them. For me, it's clothes. I inventoried my clothes over those last several months because I wanted to know. To, well, I've always kind of kept track, but I I really wanted to know. And so I I did a list. What do I own? Where did I buy it? Did I buy it new or did I buy it used? And and it's a little embarrassing to admit. But I have 128 pieces of clothes and shoes, not counting socks, pajamas, or underwear. 75 of those pieces I bought, I bought new, so about 59%. 53 or 41% I bought used. Many I've owned for more than a decade. I've carefully curated them. I wear them all, but they're superfluous. I don't need that many clothes, but I have them. And so one of the things I've decided to do this year is just thinking about, are we spending too much? Is not buying any. I haven't bought any clothes this year. I bought a pair of slippers in Japan in January. That's it. I've not bought anything since, and we'll see how I do. But we buy the, these things that are superfluous often because, because they give us pleasure. Gro describes pleasure... And he distinguishes it from from joy. Pleasure, he says, it's a matter of encountering. So when we encounter something, he writes, it is a possibility of feeling that finds completion in an encounter with a body, element, or substance. That is all there is to pleasure. Agreeable sensations, sweet, unprecedented, deliciously unexpected, wild. It is always some sensation and always triggered by an, an encounter. As someone's mentioning, he's, he's amazed at how much many of his millennial generations spend on alcohol. Alcohol is something we consume for pleasure. But things that bring pleasure, over time, that the intensity is reduced. They, they don't bring us so much pleasure as they're repeated. And so we have to take more of it. Increase the quantity, or increase the diversity of the kind, Crow points out in his book. He contrasts that with joy. He writes, joy is an activity, executing with ease something difficult that has taken time to master, asserting the faculties of the mind and the body, joys of thought when it finds and discovers, what Seneca would call wisdom. There's joy in finding wisdom. Growth continues, joys of the body, when it achieves without effort. That is why joy, unlike pleasure, increases with repetition and is enriched. Joy is something we get by taking on new skills, learning things, using our talents, sharing that talent with others, including our time, giving service. But it, it is taking these skills that we learn over time. We put forth the effort. That's what brings joy as opposed to pleasure, which is just sheer encounter with something that brings that pleasurable sensation. We have then this primitive layer, the elemental. On top of that, we have the necessary, the things that we need. If we don't have, we'll have discomfort. Then we have the useful, things that will make us more efficient and that just makes life easier. On top of that, we have the superfluous, things that bring pleasure and we have for vanity. Joy, though, is about acquiring skills. And the thing about skills is it can be used to reduce our spending. Before we look at that, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Mr. Money Mustache, in an article from December 2018, shared how skills and mastering skills, acquiring skills, can help us in our quest to be early retired. He wrote, As it turns out, there is a similar hack for every single one of life's major expenses. You can meet all your needs at little or zero cost. It just takes a bit of skill. At this level, you would be able to save almost all of your income because effectively you'd have these bare necessities that you'd meet and maybe you wouldn't buy things that are useful or not so much because you could do the work yourself. It would take you longer and you would have the skills to do that. The second level, he goes on, he writes, you can substitute a bit more money, and a bit less skill to meet those needs in an only slightly more efficient lifestyle, like the one I try to lead. This might allow you to save half or two-thirds of your income. The third level, he goes on, or you can spray money in every direction randomly, trying to meet an unfiltered list of wants and needs, and end up with a random but very expensive life, while remaining almost broke through the entire thing. This is what most people do, and it leads to saving almost none of your income. All three choices are possible to do with great happiness, but in a bit of a paradox, the last and most expensive choice is the most difficult one in which to find happiness because you end up with so many distractions and so little free time. Mr. Money Mustache mentions this idea of filtering, having an unfiltered list of wants. And so, in trying to answer the question, how much should we spend? What we really need is filters. Nassim Nicholas Taleb discusses in his book *Skin in the Game*. Taleb wrote Buffett. He did not make his billions by cost-benefit analysis. Rather, he did so simply by establishing a high filter, and then picking opportunities that passed such a filter. Buffett said, "The difference between successful people." And really successful people is that really successful people say no to almost everything. So we can have a filter for our buying and, our fil- and a filter for how we spend our time. What would be this filter? What would be the questions that we would ask before we buy something? The first thing we can ask is, is how is the object classified? Is it elemental or necessary that if we don't have it, we will feel discomfort? that it'll just essentially block things up because we, we really, really need it. Or perhaps it's useful, something that will make us more efficient or nice to have. Or is it superfluous? Maybe we just want it because it, it makes us feel good, brings us pleasure, or maybe there's some vanity. I don't need to have as many clothes as I have. I like the clothes I have because it's a way that I could support the designer and know where it came from, but I I don't need that many clothes. So clearly there there's got to be some well not so much I guess it's vanity, but it's also boredom. I just like variety, and that and that's something that we have to deal with. Sometimes we just like variety because we get bored, and that. But those are not things we buy because they're useful. They're we buy because they're superfluous. The other thing to consider, and in, in terms of our filter, we discussed in episode two forty. Henry David Thoreau, he said, the cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life, which is required to be exchanged for it immediately in the long run. What's it going to cost us in terms of our time to earn the money to buy that? And is it worth it? And then finally, another filter is to ask ourselves, what economic signal does buying this item send in terms of our values? Economic growth measures the dollar value of the goods and services produced from one period to the next. It's called gross domestic product. But it measures the dollar value, not how many goods are produced, how many things. It's the value of them. And companies will only produce things they think they will sell. Every time we buy something, then we're sending a signal about what we value, what we think companies should make. We just need to be more cognizant of that. Juliet Shore, in her book, True Wealth, introduced a concept I love. It's called true materialism. It's an idea that she describes as environmentally aware consumption. She writes, in the United States, the speed of acquiring and discarding products accelerated dramatically before the crash, before the great financial crisis. The speed of just buying, 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 it's there because we don't have sufficient filters. Sometimes we're just trying to get the pleasure from from buying it without really thinking about that. But if we practice this idea of true materialism, she goes on, consumers knew relatively little about where purchases came from and the ecological impacts of their production, use and disposal. But many people do care and want to lighten the footprint of their spending. Perhaps surprisingly, she continues, the route to lower impact does not require putting on a hair shirt, nor does it entail making consumption less important. Indeed, the plentitude consumer is likely passionate about consuming and deliberate in the creation of a rich, materially, bountiful life. We don't need to be less materialist, as the standard formulation would have it, but more so. For it is only when we take the materiality of the world seriously that we can appreciate and preserve the resources on which spending depends. We need to be materialist. We need to know where the things that we're buying came from. What's their pedigree? Who made it? How are they compensated? Are they compensated fairly? This is an additional filter. What is that signal that we're sending? Everyone. Collectively, I mean, we just make, maybe we don't buy so much, but if we're sending the signal and other people send signals, companies will listen and they will change how they make their products and they'll change what they make. And it can have a huge impact on the environment. The other thing to consider, and I, I this really hit me the other day, is there will always be more. The amount of goods out there to buy, there's always more, more, more. And it hit me. I was looking at, I don't know how I got there, but I have an ancestor's name, is John Borges. He came from Hanover in the Germany region in 1863. He was 28 and he was a tailor. He got married in 1867 to Lizzie Willenborg, and in he was in Cincinnati. Williams Company did a city directory, and John was in the 1868 city directory. This cost four bucks, came out in June, and it just didn't have phone numbers. They obviously didn't have phone numbers, it just had the, the name of the person, their address, and their occupation, in his case, a tailor. So I was going through the, the city directory. It's 760 pages long. There are 200 tailors listed. Pretty hefty competition. But in terms of an index, the number, the categories of goods and services offered within the city, there was 250 of them. I randomly selected, he was a tailor, so I I selected how many categories began with the letters TA to TE. There was only nine of them. It was tag manufacturers, tailors, tailor trimmings, tanneries, tanner tools, tar manufacturer, tea dealers, telegraph, and terracotta works, and then I pulled up, and I was doing this on ancestry.com. I pulled up the city directory from 1960. It was shorter, only 600 pages long, but it was much, much smaller type. So there was 900 categories of goods and services compared to 200 or 250 back in 1868. So just about 100 years later, way more categories of goods and services, much more specialization. Only 50 tailors listed. I think if we look today, they don't do city directors anymore. There'd be maybe a dozen. But instead of eight or nine categories of goods in the index that began with TA and TE, there was twenty six of them. Tabletops, tabulating cards, tailors, tailor equipment, tailor trimmings, tank linings, tank manufacturers, tank repairs, tank sales, tape binding services, tarpaulins, taxicabs, taxidermists, tea and coffee, teachers, technic plan. Modular office equipment, telephone answering service, telephone companies, telephone equipment, television broadcasting, television radio set service and repair, tennis courts, tents and awnings, terminals, textile manufacturers, textile printers. That's a lot. Now, if we looked at it today, we don't Now there's so many categories that we just have. You just Google it and it brings it up. I tried to find a city directory. And there just isn't one, but that's, that's the challenge. There's always going to be more things. So we really need these filters to help reduce our spending, to make sure that we're only spending things that we're really going to get the benefit. So this filter, is it elemental? You know, how's it classified? Elementary, necessary, useful, superfluous. Does it contribute joy? Does it contribute to acquiring a skill As part of an activity that produces joy. Or are we buying something for pleasure, just to encounter something, and the the intensity will diminish over time? What does it cost in terms of our life, and what economic signal did it send in terms of our values? Seneca, in letter two, wrote to conclude, do you ask what the proper limit is to wealth? It is first to have what is necessary, and second, to have what is enough. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide and I'll email those links to you each week. I Also share other valuable content, like the retirement spending spreadsheet I mentioned last week. There's also a, a retirement savings spreadsheet to so know how much do you need to retire to kind of model that out. And you can get that by going to moneyfortherestofus.com and sign up, sign up for that free Insider's Guide email list. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.